this morning out of, out of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world and forfeit their life? And what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. I want to talk today, we, we, we uh, sang a lot of songs last week out of the Prosperity and Handel. We talked about our tradition of uh, uh, music and, and hymn singing that goes way back. And interestingly, when on the way out, someone said, you know, I wasn't raised in the church. I don't have that tradition. And it, it became apparent to me that, that uh, it's not just the tradition that we're bringing forward, but we're also setting tradition by what we do in the church today. And we have a tradition of discipleship in the Methodist denomination. Now, I will grant you that we have strayed greatly from its origins because it's difficult and it's hard. And uh, when you try to draw numbers of people and you start telling people, well, that the, the, way, the way is the way of the cross, which is the way of sacrifice and, and discipline and People don't come back for, for that, and we soften the message some. So I want to kind of get back a little bit to uh, where we come from as United as the United Methodist denomination. And this passage points us to that, because this is a turning point. If, if you read very many commentaries uh, in the Gospels, you'll find that verse 21 is a distinct turning point in the story of Christ. Up until then, a lot of cool stuff has been happening. There have been some ups and downs. But this is the beginning and the end, if you will. But this is the where it changes from, from you know, I'm gonna the, the thought of the disciples being I'm gonna be conquering him to him trying to get across that it was a way of sacrifice and a way of difficulty is what he was preaching. See, not many of us, if we were to encounter the Jesus of Matthew's Gospels today, would follow him. To be honest with you with the things that he was saying. It was offensive. It was radical. He was not saying the same things as the church people of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was saying, they're wrong. Go this way. And it was radically different from what they knew and they understood. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes at that time kind of get a bad rap, rap, rap because they really weren't bad people. They knew scripture. They studied hard. They thought that they knew what God's word said. But they missed Christ. That's always something for us to keep in mind as we study scripture is, is to be aware of, okay, I, I know the scripture, but and I think I know what it means, but let me be open to other to other ideas so, so that I can begin to see what God has me, has in this for me. 
Jesus, the path of Christ, is the path of great sacrifice. It wasn't the way of popularity, and I'll be honest with you, it's not the way of four-figured uh, congregation. Uh, uh, it, it's a difficult path. If we want to be followers of Christ, he tells us, pick up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. How many of us are willing to take up our cross and follow the things of this world and focus on him? Undergo great suffering at the hands of those in control? I don't think I want to do that. Not the path that I want. Deny myself? Deny my own ambitions? There's things in life that I want. What if they contradict with where Christ is telling me? Well, surely there's a middle ground where I could be kind of Christian and kind of worldly, right? Is there? It's a tough question, isn't it? Can I walk a middle path where I'm sort of a follower of Christ and sort of not? Losing our lives, losing our families, money to follow him. That's not the life I had in mind when I was growing up. That's not what I was raised in America to achieve, right? The American dream is what I'm after. The American dream and the Christian dream. It's Wesley, right? Jesus tells us to strive for perfection. He calls us to pursue it. And we have to, have to take note that the confession of faith in Christ, when we say yes to Jesus, that's the first step in a journey. It is not, a, it's not the end point. Hallelujah, look, I'm saved, and that's it. I don't have to do anything else. Wrong. It's a false message. It's not true. If you encounter the living Christ, you will not stay the same. You cannot stay the same. He changes your heart. You desire different things. And if you don't desire those things, seek Him. Because you cannot encounter the living Christ and remain as you were. And it's important that we know who Jesus is. It's even more important that we live as Jesus taught. We're told in no uncertain terms to get behind Him and follow how did he teach discipleship? Well, he demonstrated it by the way he lived his life. <coughs> and he told us to imitate his actions as closely as we can. <coughs> and that's not easy. The Wesleyan way of discipleship. I want to talk some about that. Just like with Jesus and the disciples, we can, we can look at Wesley's way and make note that it's not the popular way. It's not the simple way. It's not the easy way. John Wesley was one of the most disciplined Christians that ever lived. When he was at university, he 
studied and, and, and he started a club that would get up early in the morning and they would come together and they would pray and, and they would study and then he would go visit prisoners and he was involved in ministry in his community. And people made fun of him because they had a method to their process and they called it the Holy Club. And out of that method, we get our name, Method. Because there is a method for us if we are willing to embrace it. Not the popular way, it's not the sexy way, and it's certainly not the easiest way of numerical success. Just not. But it is our way. It is the way of the Methodist Church. The director of Western Leadership is the General Board of Discipleship and the gentleman named Steve Manager. And he knows nine characteristics of this Wesleyan way of discipleship. And I want to go through those. So we'll spend more time on some than others. The first is in a Wesleyan way of discipleship is that we are committed to what's called ongoing catechesis. And that's a big word, but really it's to education. Catechesis defined as an education in the faith of children, young people, and adults that includes especially teaching of the Christian doctrine in an or, or, organic and systematic way. It's organized. There's a way to it. And the view is to initiate the hearers into the fullness of Christian life. So we're committed to ongoing catechesis, ongoing learning. We have Sunday, Sunday morning, we have Sunday school. We try to do other Bible studies. We need other groups even beyond Bible study. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Also, the formation in Christian doctrine is critical. For example, we recited the Creed earlier, right? The doctrine of the Trinity. You know what that is? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not a Don't have to complicate That's a doctrine that we teach and we talk about. We say Jesus is the only Son of God, right? The resurrection of the body, that's a doctrine in the church. We teach doctrines, the doctrine of good and evil. God is good. There is no evil in him. So we have a commitment to teaching and learning that, that's essential for us in, in the Methodist church. The second is faithful worship that draws on, the, on a rich liturgical resource of the tradition. So liturgical, I know there's a lot of big Christian words in here, churchy words. Liturgical, quite simply, is the way that you do worship. Customary public worship done by a specific religious group according to its particular tradition. Part of our tradition, and you'll note that we've got coach after last week, there's a, there's a hymnal and a coach fairy, and a hymnal and a coach fairy, and it beats one because we want to, we, that's part of our tradition, right? The coach fairy, sitting out of the coach fairy, is part of our denominational tradition. So we want to be able to access that. So we embrace the fact that as Methodists we have some Christian, there are some things that are broadly Christian, and we embrace uh, the, those things, the resurrection, that, that Jesus came, that he was the Son of God, he was fully divine and fully human, that he died and that he rose on the third day. Those are things that Christians believe. But we also uh, have different ways in the denomination that we do things. And we have some specific things as well that we believe that uh, I know that not everyone in here does, and that's okay. But I'm talking today about what Methodists believe. 
that even music impacts our doctrine. So when we sing, Charles Weston wrote many, many hymns. When we sing, it's why I've gone from picking a couple of verses to we sang five verses of honor Christian soldiers instead of three hymns. Because there's a message in many of the hymns that if you pick and choose, you lose. You lose the message that the author intended. There's a theological point that he's trying to make or she's trying to make. And when we pick and choose, we can disrupt the impact of what that could be for us. But music is a huge part. The hymnals have huge theological importance for us. The Lord's Prayer. And you hear me frame it in the way that I do, because it's a pattern for prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are Yahweh Yuri. You are Jehovah Jireh. You are the God who provides for us. Holy is your name. Thank you for that. You are Rapha. You are Jehovah Rapha. Yahweh Rapha. You are the God who heals. And when we begin to look at that prayer and let it, let it expand, into that character of God and who God is. And maybe today I need Rapha. I need healing. Maybe tomorrow I need Jireh. I need provision. Maybe the following day I need Shalom. I need God's peace. I use that same prayer to access all of the aspects and characteristics of God. It is not empty words. It's a pattern for us throughout in order to pray powerfully. So the second is we have a, a worship tradition that draws on a rich history. A rich history. The third is that we regularly celebrate Holy Communion. Do you know how often we're really supposed to celebrate Holy Communion? Every time we come together. Yeah, so now we do it regularly, we do it monthly. But uh, if, if you want to go with what Jesus said, not do it. Maybe we need a station set up over here so that we can offer communion every week. I don't know. But regular celebration of communion and other uh, occasional celebrations, like our, we remember our baptism celebration, where, where we remember our baptism. Or, uh, it, that's something that, that we do in our tradition. The fourth is, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, is watching over one another in love through small groups, marrying, and accountability. See, being a believer requires community and fellowship. We don't live alone. We're not on an island. Uh, and you can't do that and be a Christian. Faith is always communal. It's always us together. Yes, we live it out wherever we are, but it's us coming together. One, you hear a lot of us, well, my faith is personal. That's not Christian faith. That's not who we are. You can claim Christ, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying that's not Christian faith. That's not the faith that Jesus teaches us. So we participate in spiritual accountability groups. It's part of what we do. Uh, Wesley believed this. He believed there's no personal holiness without social holiness. There's no individual holiness without holiness of the body of Christ, which is us together. And for, him, for Wesley, living holy lives require believers to share intimate details about themselves, intimate fellowship on a regular basis. Remember, this is 18th century England, just to try to grasp how revolutionary John Wesley's process was. See, he developed small groups. You hear a lot about small groups now, right? 
Well, Wesley developed a small group system in the 18th century in England, and it provided a framework to help people seek, seek what he called holiness of heart and life, because that's what we're called to. We're called to holiness of heart and life, that individually and communally. Small groups of context where seekers could receive support, accountability, encouragement, impacting the lives of one another. And you think our society is bad? Well, their society back then wasn't, wasn't full of charity. Things were not uh, great for them in England at that time. So he divided this accountability system into three different processes. And it follows along with, with really how Jesus did his ministry, which I like. And when I was at Sugar Love, we put together what we called programs, which was of this design where you have a larger group, which is like when Jesus was in the larger groups and preaching to the crowd. Then you have the disciples, which was a group of 12. And then you had uh, Peter, James, and John. He had a smaller group that was closer to him. And, and that's similar to what Wesley's system was. So he had what he called societies, which was the larger group. And then he had classes, which was the 10 to 12 and then band. Now, societies were, were kind of like what we're doing here. It was an educational process. Uh, it was where the tenets of Methodism were presented. So there'd be someone uh, like me up here, and I'd uh, be teaching in a large classroom setting through lecture, reading, <coughs> reading exhorting, what, whatever it might be, in order to help people understand what it was that we were talking about when we were talking about Methodism. So that was, that's what society started. People sat in rows. Women and men, we have to separate y'all. Men on one side and women on the other, so you don't get distracted. And you listen to a prepared lecture. No opportunity to respond or feedback. So for me, it would have been really hard because I'm always about to be an like, But the goal was to teach key Methodist doctrines. I'm going to touch on three of them. One is the perfectibility of humanity. And we believe that, that we are able to achieve that through the power of God, not through our own. Versus reformed and Calvinistic views of human depravity. We talked a few weeks back about how, how Calvin thought, thought that, that human humanity was total, started with total depravity. We know because we think grace is always present. If you remove God's grace, if we were not made in the image of God, if we were not an ongoing day, the image of God, if you pulled grace out, yes, we would have no, no part of God in us. Yes, that would be total depravity. But that cannot happen because God is always, always with us, seeking us, whether it's with provenient grace, which is the grace that goes before, justifying grace, that conversion, sanctifying grace that continues to transform us. So teaching, that's one of the Methodist differences. And there's some differences. Calvinism was years before Wesley, but there were some, such distinctions the second was the freedom of human will versus theological determinism. And we talked about this time, we've had some conversations about this. The once saved, always saved idea. As Methodists, we do not believe in once saved, always saved. We think that human that we have the ability to choose to say no or to say yes. And this is the this is one of those issues where you can argue both sides scripturally, right? Because you can go and you can find passages of scripture that would point us to say, well, it's obviously it's been, once you are truly saved, then you are saved. And if you, if you 
fall away when you were never saved in the first place. Versus, I said yes and I meant it, and then I said no and turned away. The irony is that if you, both, both camps, you end up in the same place. If, if you're separate from God, you're, you're separate from God. But uh, we do believe that, that in, in Methodism that, that we have that choice. But you can argue passages of Scripture on one side or the other. And when, I, when that happens to me, I'm going to give you one step at how, how I try to reconcile these kinds of things. It's when that happens uh, for me, when I, when I can pull Scripture over here and say, well, that points me to one side of all these things. I can pull Scriptures that point me to, well, no, it's obvious that, that we, we have the ability to say no. Then I go, okay, what, what am I missing? And it points me back to the kind of Pharisee question, right? Because they thought that they were looking for a conquering king. That was what they were looking for. And Jesus wasn't that. So they had in their head, this is what it needed to be. And they never stepped back far enough. They, they couldn't see the forest for the trees. And if we're not careful, individual passages of Scripture become the trees for us. And we can and, and we can get lost in that. So, so when that happens, I, I go, okay, am I, am I in that place? Am I not seeing the forest for the trees? And I step back and I go, okay, how has God treated his people scripturally over time. Did, was Israel able to say no to God? Yes. Did he accept them back? Yes. <coughs> so when I step out of it, I go, okay, let me, where's God? Because I can argue both sides of this, so, so obviously it's not as clear as I would like it to be. And I see that God has, over the course of scriptural history, has always allowed people to leave and allowed them to come back. So, so that points me to, okay, if that's the character of God in this, then that's where I'm going to fall. That he gave us the free will ability. It's part of the reason I'm Baptist guy. It's because of things like this. Uh, it's part of why I'm a Baptist preacher. And not, and not some, some other denomination. The third thing, true religion manifested in human relationships. See, we, we see religion communally, right, socially. There are mystics back in the back in, in the early days of the church and even through Wesley's time, and even today, who emphasize inner contemplation is the way to say it, right? We call it the new, we work on it, the new age movement. I'm not sure what it's called anymore. So Methodism believes that there's true religion is manifest in, in human relationships that the body of Christ together is the key. And these societies were started by John and Charles Wesley, but over time they, they grew and, and expanded and they had to bring in new leadership, and so they did. They brought in lay leadership to help with that. The major aim of societies was to present scriptural truths and have those truths clearly understood. Not that you would have to agree with everything, but here's why we believe what we believe. The next level is class meetings. And these were the most influential unit in Methodism. Probably Wesley's greatest contribution. If you think back in the 18th century England, it was class system. Or, you know, it was classes. And those groups were separate. It wasn't as bad as the caste system in India, but it was similar. It just didn't associate much with each other. But Wesley's groups did, and he contributed to breaking down uh, 
and radically transforming the whole English society because he had all of these groups coming together to, to learn about who God is in the midst of it. And God is no respecter of person. God doesn't care how much you have or what you got or where you come from. Whether you're the lowest of the low or the highest of the high, God loves you. Meet you where you're at. Continually. Classes for smaller groups, 10 to 12. They meet weekly for personal supervision and spiritual growth. And here's an important piece of this. It wasn't a Bible study. When you were at a class meeting, one, what, what you came for was accountability. It was, Robert, how's your soul this week? What are you wrestling with in your Christian walk? David, how are you doing this week? What's going well? What's not going well? Where'd you fall short? We don't ask those kind of questions, do we? Ooh. Oh, yeah. But we need somebody in our life to ask those questions. Otherwise, we can lie. Otherwise, we don't have accountability to help us when we begin to drift, when we begin to wander away. Now, these were co-educational, and believe it or not, even in 18th century England, women were in leadership in some of these groups. And these were diverse ages and social states. It didn't matter. You know, in, in the society, you had the men over here and women over This was not that. This, this was, this, this was a, a diverse group. Because Wesley wanted the class to represent a cross-section of Methodism. And a cross-section of Methodism was a cross-section of people, of all classes and places. So it helped to break and change England. And the leaders would share, the leaders would share honestly about their failures. They would be an example to others. They would, they would share about their sins and their temptations and their inner battles. They were the role models for others. That'd be rough to find leaders in church women. What's your job? I have to share everything that you're struggling with. Other than that, you know, See, the leaders were fellow strugglers. We struggled along together as the body of Christ. United in one goal, we want to become more like Jesus. Our eye is on the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Okay, we're going to follow you and we're going to share the stuff we don't share with anybody, with each other. And we're going to become more like Jesus along the way because you're going to help me and I'm going to help you. And the smaller groups, the last group was banned. And these were grouped by gender or age, because these were the deepest of the deep groups. The, the questions that, that this group were asked were very personal and, 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 and at depth. These were, these were voluntary, so if you wanted to be a Methodist, you needed to do the society, and you needed to do the class, bands were voluntary. These are people who profess the Christian faith, but they wanted to grow in love, and they wanted to grow in holiness, purity, and <coughs> Ruthless honesty and self-openness were the characteristics here. Nothing was out of bounds. Nothing was out of bounds. You were, this group, you were allowed to ask whatever you wanted to ask. And the expectation was that honesty would abound. It was rigorous and, and ruthless honesty as being absolutely open and having a small group of that you should do that with. It's amazing to me that Methodism survived. And it did more than that. Because it didn't just survive. It blew up. Almost like there's a 
lot of us really want that. We want a place to go where we can wrestle together, where I don't have to wrestle with all of my stuff alone. So you don't see that very much in the Methodist church. I wonder what it would look like here if we denied it did. His approach is a holistic approach to Christian formation. He, yes, you, you do study and you do scripture and you learn doctrine and you learn those things, but you also have accountability and you have surrounding you people who can walk with you and support you. The fifth thing is an emphasis on cultivating intentional relationships and ministry with the poor, which is what we do in our mission. We do it with the fish, we do it with the shepherd's staff, the children's home, lots of different places. Hopefully you do it individually in your lives. The sixth is to embrace uh, a Wesleyan stewardship model. Now one of his famous sayings was, uh, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That's, West, that's kind of the, the mantra. Gain all you can, make all you can. Not wrong to make money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not. Make all the money you can possibly make. Gain all you can. Save all you can so that you can give all you can. So what does it mean by that? Does that mean I go in and make money however I want? Well, not really. He, earning money was discouraged if it came at the expense of our own health, whether physical or spiritual. There were some limitations. He didn't did not just go make a bunch of money. It's pay attention to how you do it physically and spiritually. And also, uh, uh, you don't deal deviously. Be a Christian in, in your business practices. So it was, didn't want workaholics. Didn't want workaholics. Wanted folks who, 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 were, who were able to embrace their Christianity and live that out fully in their business. Save all we can also matters. His idea, and this one, I, I don't know how he did it because uh, this is the hard one. See, his idea of saving all we can runs uh, deeper than getting out of or buying things on sale. What we buy matters as much as what we pay for. For Wesley, saving meant avoiding any expense that was simply for our own pleasure rather than for taking care of legitimate needs. So other people's legitimate needs took priority over fun stuff for me. Anyway, <laughs> I'm here either. Now he lived that way. And, and I and he, it's the way of Christ, right? Sacrifice. It's absolutely what Jesus preached. The rich man came and what did he tell? Go and sell all you have. Come and follow me. It's absolutely the way of, of, of Christ. Man, it's hard. It's hard. It takes practice to get good at it, right? And give all, all we can is just a reflection of God's own generosity. God has given so much to us, so we give back to Him. The last three years, regular Bible study is regular Bible study, prayer, fasting, be disciplined in these things, and other personal means of grace, community, participate in church, do those things. Uh, eight is consistent concern for inviting individuals and families into relationships with Jesus is something that we can all do better at, I'm sure. How many folks did you invite to? Hey, you didn't ask the question, hey, would you like to know Jesus? This week, yeah, I'm over. 
Intentional discipleship is, is what it's about. Intentional invitation to discipleship. And it's not even that. It, 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 how many people did you invite to your, to your Sunday school class? You know, whatever it is that's helping you grow in your faith. I mean, are you inviting people to come with you? That's part of the Methodist way. The last is attending to, identifying, and cultivating those who are gifted for leadership. See, each of us, especially those of us who are teachers, those of us who are involved in leadership, will see different folks who have uh, giftedness. Part of our job is not to keep them, but to identify them, to encourage them, to give them the opportunity to lead within our context and, and help them to grow to where then they can become a leader on their own. Because that's what we want. We want more folks who are leaders so that they can impact more people. Because one disciples make disciples. It's simply the truth. So those are the nine characteristics of the Wesleyan way of discipleship. Easy, simple. Mmm, no. I, I don't do great at it either, you know. Um, we have a different set of values. The Methodist has a different set of values and priorities, even than some other denominations. Nothing wrong with other denominations. I'm not, I'm not cracking on anybody. I'm saying this is who we are. We seek after holiness of heart, holiness of life. And we do it together, communally. It's what we're called to do and who we're called to be. The New Interpreter's Bible Commentary says this. The call to discipleship is a matter of confession. Which means declaring one's faith in Jesus as the Christ, as God's definitive act of revelation and salvation. The word used to mean confession also means martyrdom in the sense of witness, not in the sense of what was made. The giving of one's life is presented as an act of testimony to a truth bigger than oneself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, it, it, its result may be literal martyrdom, as it happened in Matthew's church, as it happened back in that time, and in every generation since, and continues today. We see this in the Middle East, even now, there are Christians dying for their faith. Orientation toward God revealed in Christ as the Lord of one's life rather than idolatrous self-orientation is the decisive and crucial difference in such. Not about us. Not about what what I want. It's us in community. So Jesus has a warning to his followers. It's really clear. Really clear. When we set our mind on human things rather than on divine things, our lives can become a stumbling block to others in their pursuit of Jesus. They're looking at us. Is your life reflecting Jesus? Is it not? I have areas where I can say yes. I have areas where I say no. We each have areas to work on. So as you think about this congregation, as you think about the focus of your ministry, the decisions you make in your life, the goals of your life, simply pray that the Spirit is going to guide you to set your mind on divine things. That your witness may lead others to be marked by holiness of heart and holiness of life. As we take up our cross and follow him, he will change us and make us which is what we want. Good Lord.
as we close this morning, if there are things that you are trying to move any of us or each of us to, impress that upon us, Lord, that we might make it an offering to you, that we might surrender it to you, that we become more like you. In Jesus' name.